0: Welcome to Sichot Kashot, Difficult Conversations. I'm your host, Maddie Anderson. Today, I'm joined by my classmate and friend, Ashley Barrett. Ashley and I will be ordained as rabbis on HUC-JIR's historic Cincinnati campus in just a few weeks. In this episode, we will discuss intermarriage in the American Jewish community. This episode is inspired by our final assignment for a course with Dr. Bruce Phillips, a professor on our LA campus. Ashley, can you introduce yourself and offer a little bit of framing for the first text that we'll discuss this morning? For sure. Thanks, Maddie.
1: Thanks for having me on your podcast. This is very exciting. I am Ashley Barrett. I am a soon-to-be-ordained rabbi, originally from the Cleveland, Ohio area, and um, starting July 1st of 2022, I will be the assistant rabbi and director of congregational learning at Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation, that's a mouthful, Um, in Reston, Virginia. So yeah, I'm really excited.
0: Awesome. That's so exciting. Do you want to offer a little bit of framing for the first text we're going to look at?
1: Sure. Today, we're going to look a little bit at an article called Christmas in the Room, Gender Conflict and Compromise in Multi-Religious Domestic Space, authored by Samira K. Mehta, um, who is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and she looks at interfaith relationships really in the domestic space and argues how interfaith relationships play out in the home is distinctly different than how they play out in the public sphere. Because gender and power and conflict and all of these things kind of come to a head and are negotiated differently when they're between two people who are in a marriage relationship, who have come together to build a home, to raise children, to bring two lives together as one. She argues that this kind of relationship is much different than how it plays out in, you know, in the conversation of the separation of church and state or how it plays out in the classroom, bringing together different religious traditions. So
0: that's where we'll start this morning. Awesome. I'm really excited to talk about this part, especially because. You and I both have some personal connections. Um, So I want to share for our listeners, we're going to read just a little bit of text. There will be more in the text sheet if you want to take this conversation out into the world, and you can find that at my website, rabbimaddy.com. Let's get started. Ashley, since you picked these texts, do you want to read the text? And then I'll read when we get to the next section. For
1: sure. So we're going to
0: start by looking at
1: this idea of compromise and like what it means to compromise about faith traditions in a multi-faith domestic space. So I'm going to share a little bit of a text and some of Professor Meta's thought on this subject. And then I think it's really going to provide a jumping off point for um, Maddie for you and I to share our own stories and to reflect on those. So she talks about compromise and one of the things that Professor Meta says is, different families come up with different compromises. Some families simply do not celebrate Christmas at home at all. Following the reform movement's suggestion that they celebrate only in homes of relatives, many others find different compromises. So... I was really struck by this, that she articulates really the reform movement's position on this and celebrating Christmas outside of the home. And Maddie, maybe if you want to start sharing, what did that look like in, in your
0: family growing up? Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to share this. So I'll talk just a little bit about what my family structure was growing up. And then I will talk more specifically about how we dealt with Christian holidays And so my mom was raised Jewish. My dad was raised Methodist. When they decided to get married, they decided right away that they were going to have a Jewish home and Jewish kids. Or, really, as my mom tells it, on their third date, she looked at him and said, I really like you. And I think this could go somewhere. But raising Jewish kids is a non starter for me. And I want to know if you're okay with that and if you're open to that. And he said, yes. And so they, you know, kept dating and fell in love. And here I am. Thanks. <laughs> um, so that means that one side of my family is Christian and one side of my family is Jewish, which in some ways can make things complicated. But for me, I, I think it it opened my world to understanding more than one kind of tradition. And it made it a lot easier for me to get to know people and build relationships with people who had traditions different from my own, because that was a part of my family experience. So, like this quote suggests, my parents are reform, they raised us reform. So they were probably given this suggestion to only celebrate outside of the home. I also think it's what my mom wanted. Like, I don't think she could ever imagine having a Christmas tree in her house. And it was um, it just, it didn't make sense for us. Like, I don't know. Our house was very Jewish. My dad converted when I was nine but I didn't even know he wasn't Jewish until he came home one day to tell us he was converting. Like, that's how Jewish our house was. And we all went to Friday night services together. And if we weren't at services, we were around the table having Shabbat dinner. So like I grew up in a very Jewish home and my grandparents, very Christian, very involved in their church in a lot of different ways, both as educators and volunteers and just really involved in their community. So, you know, I think there were times that it was hard for them, especially as my dad was converting, because for, for parents, it's difficult to see your kids choose something different from what you expected, but they really eventually came around and embraced us, especially when, I told them that I was going to study to become a rabbi. I think they understood that religion was still a very important part of our family. It just looked a little different than what they expected. So in terms of Christmas, we would celebrate Christmas either in my grandparents' house or my great aunt and uncle. It just depended on the year where we were, but we were always together with our family. My brother and I got Christmas presents, but our family usually wrapped them in Hanukkah paper to like, try and make us feel as welcome as we could at the Christmas party. But honestly, they, they really didn't even have to do that for us. Or I guess I should say for me, I can't really speak for what it was like for my brother. But for me, I loved Christmas not because I knew anything about the holiday or like Jesus and that relation to it. I mean, I knew a little, but I didn't know that much about the religious aspect. For me, it was, it was a time to be with family where we ate really good food and we played a lot of games together. And we used to do what's that? Is it the 12 days of Christmas that there's like, we used to record that every single oh, wow. year and like, you know, back on VHS tape, like real old school. Um, I, I think it might be on YouTube somewhere. So if I can find that, I'll, uh, I'll put it in the show notes for everyone's entertainment, These <laughs> videos from the nineties. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was always such a good time. And I loved decorating the Christmas tree. Like I liked decorating. And so that was one of the things my grandma always saved for me. Mm-hmm. And at home, we just had Hanukkah that time of year. And we did have Hanukkah in the very American way where we got presents and <laughs> um, And it was, um, but it it wasn't Jewish Christmas, you know, it was Hanukkah and we read Hanukkah books and we ate latkes and some of our presents were socks because that's, that's what Hanukkah is all about getting new socks. So that's a little bit about how I grew up. I have some other stories I can share a little bit later, but I love to hear from you. Ashley is your embarking on starting a family of your own and and merging your family with another family. And I think from my understanding, you plan to have a Jewish household, but you'll have an interfaith family. So what's going on in your mind right now? Yeah.
1: Well, I loved all the stories that you shared and kind of your take on it. And I am also from an interfaith family. And I think that it's just fascinating. This is really what Dr. Meadows talks about in, in the text is that The domestic space is so different than the public space because every family negotiates these questions so differently and that I'm from an interfaith family. My father didn't convert and it was never a question. You know, we, that's where our our families were very similar. It was never a question that we would not be celebrating Christmas in the home. We always celebrated it with family, his side of the family. And then after my, my parents' divorce, Christmas kind of became this, uh, this point of contention and really a point of conflict for them where my dad actually did set up a Christmas tree when we were very much living with both parents. The first year they were separated and then the darn cat knocked over the Christmas tree and that was the end of Christmas (laughs) or a Christmas tree in our, our dad's house. (laughs) Um, so that's, Fascinating and very funny. But yeah, for those of you listening, as of this moment, at the end of March in 2022, the reform movement does not ordain rabbis who are in interfaith marriages. So my fiance converted, but I very much consider myself in an interfaith family. I still have, you know, those roots of my my dad's side and cousins out there who are, christian and of other denominations and my my partner's family is also christian so you know we we have to negotiate this um we're moving away to dc obviously and we have to negotiate how we come back to cincinnati and see family for christmas and all of these things and it's not something that's going to be foreign to me you know it's it's very much my family and who you know they're a part of me and you know, we have to, we have to work on that. We have to compromise and talk about how we do these things. And he introduced me to my first like fish fry, not Christmas related, Lent related, Um, but it's compromise, but it's also learning, um, beautiful learning about my partner and, you know, all of that.
0: That's really exciting. Another thing it makes me think is like, as rabbis, we're so prepared to do interfaith work, which is like, it's a big part of our job, no matter where we go. Right, you're going to be in a synagogue. I'm going to be in a Hillel. We're going to have people who have relationships, you know, both personal, romantic relationships and friendships with people of other faiths, and have issues that come up in those relationships and and need. Someone to bounce their thoughts off of, or someone to help their family make these really hard decisions. And, you know, I am excited that there are rabbis like us, and we're not an anomaly. I think there are many rabbis in the reform movement who are raised in families like ours, who I think are really more prepared to tackle these conversations than people who have been raised in a fully Jewish space. And so I'm, I guess I'm just excited for us to have, have those experiences in our back pockets as we go into our work. You know, another thing I'm thinking about, and, and I hope he doesn't kill me, but my brother, um, I'm going to talk about my brother and his family for a few minutes. My brother also has a partner who was raised Christian. Neither of them are really very religious, my brother or his partner. And so they've decided Not to really engage in organized religion, which is super common for our generation, like across faiths. It's not just in Judaism. A lot of people are just choosing a more secular lifestyle that doesn't include religion, but they still want bits of their family tradition. And so, even like without being members of a synagogue or a church, they're still bringing religion into their lives in some ways. And they do have a little bit of everything in their home that time of year. Um, My sister-in-law, Tori, loves to decorate, and she does a fantastic job. And she always, I love it, like the decorations are always even. It's like half Hanukkah decorations and half Christmas decorations, and they have a beautiful tree, and, you know, my nephew loves all of it, and he's getting to learn about all these different traditions, which will also make him a more open-minded person as he grows up. Um, And so it looks different from the house than what my brother and I grew up in. And, you know, I'll be honest, it was hard for my mom and I at first to accept that they made decisions that were different from, you know, what we envisioned, but I think that we've all really embraced it. And I'm just grateful that they're still choosing to have traditions from both of our families because, you know, there's a lot about religion that I love and that I care about, but I think family tradition being passed on from generation to generation is is such a big part of how we stay connected in our family relationships. And so, you know, I'm glad to see that.
1: Mm. And your story is so powerful because what you shared is the piece that makes this conversation and why specifically this text is important and why this conversation is so different, like Christmas in the home versus Christmas, a Christmas tree in public hall, um, is that there's so much emotion. Um, These are, these are tough conversations and people that We love that we have to negotiate these things. And I think where you ended there is like the powerful piece that links all of humanity across time and space is that at the end of the day, we're members of our own family unit. And like, we, we just want to love the people that are in our family and like want to be accepted by them. And I think that rings true for like any conversation that's greater than interfaith marriage. So it's all just about helping ourselves and helping our congregants navigate these questions and figure it out for themselves so they can, you know, exist in their families and and live happy, fulfilled lives.
0: Absolutely. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Okay, let's read this next quote from the article and talk about it a little that I think will transition us into our next subject. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So just a,
1: a piece of this article, the underlining kind of gender conversation and all of these, and it's looking at it from a very heteronormative kind of angle, but I think acknowledges. The changing times, and I found this to be fascinating. That she just said that gender. I'm just going to paraphrase this text. Up until 1980-ish, it was just assumed that hetero couples that came together, the the woman would take the husband's religion, and I found that to be fascinating because you can share what. You kind of learned growing up, but I, I always remember that it was, and I don't know if this was maybe just like a Jewish context, but that the wife's religion would be the religion that they followed. And maybe that was because of the Jewish component. But I think this is, this is fascinating, like how gender plays into which religion is practiced in the home. But
0: again, that's like, that's changing as you, you hinted at. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was actually going to say the same thing is that I, I think it it is different in the Jewish context. And I wonder if that's about like, the way we mark ancestry, right? Because we mark ancestry through maternal bloodline, typically. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting, because my mom's parents were also an interfaith couple. My Grant, my maternal grandmother, who's Jewish, was raised in an Orthodox family, and she and her sisters were the first in our family to leave Orthodoxy, and they found their way to the reform movement, and so, like, thank you, Grandma Ladi. <laughs> um, thank you so much for putting me on this path, and You know, she married a man, my grandpa, Jerry, he was not Jewish and he never converted, but they had a Jewish household. My mother was raised Jewish. I think they also celebrated, you know, Christian holidays with my grandfather's side of the family, but not in their home. And Mm -hmm. so that does make me think that there's something about Jewish tradition that maybe looks a little different than the rest of American society in this context. And I don't know, I'll be curious to hear if there's any feedback from listeners. If you have a different experience with this, I think we'd be curious to hear.
1: I think we all just need to take a moment also and acknowledge that like, Maddie, your grandparents- We're interfaith, and like her, you said her sister was also. That's amazing. Like that, you must have read all the like historical statistics in this class so much differently than anyone else. I feel like, you know, two generations ago, interfaith marriage was such a, a vastly different thing and accepted in society in a different way than it is today. Um, and especially within the Jewish world and the Reform movement, I think that is maybe not the Reform movement, but within the Jewish world, I think that's amazing and. Wow, what a, what a powerful family story you have.
0: You know, it's really interesting that you say that. My grandparents were not married by a rabbi, and I never really questioned why. Why they didn't have a Jewish wedding. They had a courthouse wedding, and I never questioned why. But this conversation is making me think it was likely because a rabbi wouldn't marry them, and so they just went and got married. And, you know, they... My mom in high school was in middle of nowhere, Peru, Indiana, um, which is about 30 minutes from Kokomo, Indiana, where we have an HUC Cincinnati student pulpit that I was really lucky to serve in. I um, mean, it's the synagogue my mom was bought mitzvahed in. She was bought mitzvahed by an HUC rabbi. So the community that they found that welcomed them was a community led by an HUC student. So that's just another fun little, little tidbit of my family history. Um,
1: Back to the historic Cincinnati campus.
0: Amen. Okay, so I'm going to move us into our next section where we're going to talk about an article that's really um, a report on statistical data. It's titled Intermarriage in the 21st Century, and it's written by our professor, Dr. Bruce Phillips. He is a professor of sociology and Jewish communal service on our Los Angeles campus, and he's among the leading researchers in sociology of American Jewry for over three decades. So, You know, I know statistics aren't everyone's favorite. I'm like a total weirdo and I like statistics. It's one of the highest grades I ever received in a math class in undergrad when I was uh, still on a science track and I had to take stats. So let's get into it. There's a table in the text sheet that you can look at. I'm going to talk just a little bit about it so the listeners have an idea of what we're looking at so the table that we're looking at displays how three different generations of jews identified in their youth and in adulthood the jews that we're looking at are jews who were raised in mixed ancestry homes which is what we're talking about um interfaith homes where one parent is jewish and one parent identifies as something else and so that's an important piece of this that we're specifically looking at people who were raised in interfaith families and their affiliation to the Jewish religion, um, both as children and as adults, because, you know, we, we change when we become adults, um, and we sort of find our own path. So in the category Jewish by religion, we're looking at baby boomers, Gen X and millennial for the three generations. The numbers for the percentage of people who identified as Jewish by religion when they were raised, both for baby boomers and Gen X, are around 20, and they cut in half um, by the time they get to adulthood. So for baby boomers, it's 13% and Gen X, 11%. So a lot of them stopped identifying as Jewish when they moved into adulthood. Millennials, the numbers are way higher in both, which I think is really interesting. We're going to talk about why Bruce thinks that is what he said in this article. But millennials raised in mixed ancestry homes, identified as Jewish by religion, 36% when they were being raised and, and currently Jewish by religion, millennials identify at 27%. So it dropped by about 10%, which is similar to the two generations before, but we started 15% higher. So there's significantly more millennials who are identifying as Jewish by religion who come from mixed ancestry homes. So in the article, Bruce asked like what explains this higher persistence of Jewish identification among millennials, the cohort that in theory should be the most assimilated, like thinking that over time as we have interfaith family and interfaith family and interfaith family that like eventually eventually, you know, maybe there's a little less tradition in the home, a little less connection to religion, like like my brother, like they still have tradition in the home, but they're not, you know, they're, they don't identify by their religion. And my nephew certainly doesn't identify by any religion. So what they found was that millennials had the most access to both formal and informal Jewish education. So the categories that they came up with were religious school, youth groups, summer camps, Taglit birthright trips to Israel, and just simply having Jewish friends. And so uh, the last thing I really liked that Bruce said is he said the persistence of Jewish identification among millennials is unexpected. So that just made me smile. And I wanted to share that line. So I think what I'm most surprised by in this data is like exactly what Bruce points out. Why are millennials more persistently dedicated to being Jewish by religion? And like, yes, there's access to formal and informal Jewish education. And and we both had a lot of the experiences in that list. But Mm -hmm. still, we're in the generation that, like I said before, is choosing more often to go the secular route. And that's like across religions. That is not just in Judaism. And so I guess I'm, I'm surprised to see that there's this many people who choose to identify as Jewish by religion, especially given an upbringing that really gives them multiple options. Yeah, I like completely
1: agree. I'm like very surprised by these statistics also. I think it's just because like something about the Jewish world that feels different than maybe other faith communities is that like Judaism feels like it refuses to let go of its own. Professor Phillips provided a great list in his article of religious schools, youth groups, summer camps, glee, birthright trips, and Jewish friends. But there's so much more to that that we can add to this list that like really nourishes a person through development in in the Jewish world the Jewish world has organizations and resources as a person grows like i'm thinking about musha house and just like spontaneous kabura groups in big cities and also independent minyanim, that that really calls people to find Judaism where it matters to them. I mean, he cited youth groups, but also like Hillel and work on campus. And there are so many political organizations that are Jewishly inspired or work towards promoting Jewish values that it's really hard to let go of a person or for a person maybe to let go of Judaism because it's just so persistent. And I'm just curious to see what these statistics look like when millennials turn into, you know, older adults, I guess. Um, And I don't really know how to define us or or even think about myself being closer to 50 one day, but it's, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it'll be interesting to see like what our generation's kids, how they grow up and then how they identify in adulthood, right? Like, will we continue to see an upward trend? Will, this trend plateau and we will stay at sort of a similar rate, or is it going to drop back down because secular identity is becoming far more popular in America? I mean, you know, we can't we can't predict the future. Uh, we can try, but it's probably a waste of our time, so we won't. But yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. And you know, we're talking a lot about like how we nourish the kids and bring them in and I think that's important but when we're talking about interfaith families I think it's also about nourishing the couple and it's making the couple want to be a part of the community and want to continue holding their traditions in their home and to do that I can't remember who the speaker was but we had a speaker in our class who works in the San Francisco Bay area uh, with interfaith couples And she talked a lot about creating programming that was specifically geared towards interfaith families, you know, in Reform Jewish spaces, which is really all I can speak to because that's most of my experience. In Reform Jewish spaces, we talk about like how important it is to be welcoming. The Union for Reform Judaism for several years had this tagline that was called Audacious Hospitality. And it was about like, how do we make our spaces feel like as warm and fuzzy and loving as possible? So people want to be there. And in some ways, we've done a really good job of that. In other ways, we've failed. We won't get into all the different ways that we've succeeded and failed at being welcoming. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think we could do better is focus on our interfaith families from an interfaith lens. We welcome them, but we ask them to come into a fully Jewish space, a space that adults are often expected to have a certain baseline of knowledge, which just isn't fair because we all have different educations. Uh, We all came from different upbringings that, you know, maybe you had one year of religious school or maybe you grew up in a Jewish day school and our levels of Jewish education are all different. Like I even felt that coming into rabbinical school, we have classmates who grew up in Jewish day school and they're like Hebrew is phenomenal. And I was over there like You know, working really hard just to get my Hebrew good enough to get into school. And I've continued to work really hard to improve on it because it's not something I've worked on my whole life. And so I would love to see us find a way to shift our perspective and think about interfaith families in the sense that, like, they don't all know everything. And sometimes the partner who's not Jewish doesn't know anything really except for the holidays that they celebrate in their home and you know the things that they've attended in the community and learned in those spaces and if we created spaces thinking about especially about the non-jewish partner and like how can we create education for non-jewish partners and for both partners that's compelling to both people and not infantilizing to the non-jewish partner how do we make them feel like full members of our community because in order for them to embrace it for their children, they have to embrace it for themselves.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, Maddie, what you said, that really separates us as, you know, Arab. Rav, Arab rabbis, like almost on the cusp of ordination, Um, that's what separates how we're thinking about this from maybe how other like engagement professionals or programming people in the Jewish world are thinking about this, because it really ties back. We're putting our rabbi pastoral hats on. It ties back to what we open this conversation with is that we have to acknowledge in our families that every family is negotiating these conversations differently and they come to figuring out what their interfaith household looks like very differently. Because everyone comes from different family stories and has these different family expectations that they put on to their relationships, Might maybe themselves or implicitly through kind of generational baggage. And we have to think about that as what does it mean to make this welcoming space? And it comes through education and acknowledging a whole couple and their story and knowing people and all of these things together. And I think that's beautiful. And if we can inspire our colleagues and the next generation to create a Jewish world that looks like that and works to help interfaith families come together in that kind of way, that pastoral way almost, I think these statistics might look even better in the future. And Maybe that's my eternal optimist, um, but I, you know, I love Judaism, and I I, I want to see these numbers even better than the millennials are doing right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's optimistic, but I, I can't remember exactly which study it is that we looked at. We've been in this class all semester, so we've looked at a ton of statistics for Dr. Phillips. Yeah, many, many statistics, um, but one of the sets we looked at talked about this idea that two interfaith couples actually have the ability to build our Jewish community faster than one Jewish couple. Now, look, we're not saying if you want a Jewish partner, don't look for a Jewish partner. Like, look for a Jewish partner if that's what you're looking for. Ultimately, we want people to have partners that, you know, make them happy and treat them well and and whom they love. And it doesn't have to be about sharing the same faith. There are other ways to celebrate your faith tradition without being the same faith. And there are opportunities for people to convert into our community if that's, if that's what's meaningful for them. But it's not for everyone. You know, like we said, my dad chose to convert. Your dad didn't. It's different for everyone. And like you said, it's about embracing every individual person and their needs. It's not our job to prescribe what our community should be doing. It's our job to embrace them. And like you said, I think it's an opportunity for our community to grow. It's an opportunity to have you know, more families and more kids raised in the Jewish faith. And, and maybe it looks a little different in each of those households, but, you know, again, that's up to every individual family.
1: We can maybe close with words from my mentor, Rabbi Josh Brown, who is the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in Akron, Ohio, who told me that he firmly believes that interfaith marriage makes the Jewish people more rich and more beautiful. And that's why he loves doing interfaith marriages. And I'm just really excited to to get out there and do the, the holy work of bringing up the next generation of Jewish people from all family backgrounds.
0: Amen, but amen. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for taking on our final assignment in this way. It's so much more fun than writing a paper. I'm really excited that we did this. And just, I really, I appreciate you taking the time to join me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great.
0: This episode of Sichot Kashot was recorded, produced, and sound engineered by me, Maddie Anderson. Mm -hmm.